Hi, it's Joe Lowry from Global Lithium Self-Quarantine Central. Today we're going to do a couple of things. I am going to repost Global Lithium Podcast, Episode 20, Simon Says, with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence's Simon Moores and Andy Miller. And I'm also going to do a little lead-in and talk about what I think the key takeaways of this episode are. This was recorded in August 2018 in London. And to be honest, I have not listened to this in a long time, but I was shocked at one, how valid everything in this podcast is, except for a few of the numbers that have changed over time. But the concepts are still very valid. Uh, We are gonna get into many topics. I'll kind of go through what I think are the key takeaways. And then I'm also gonna talk a little bit about uh, the current situation in the market. Uh, I know uh, in the US this week, we've had all our pro sports canceled. We've had the NCAA tournament canceled. We're actually, for the most part, being told to stay at home and uh, ride out the infection curve of the coronavirus. Um, And ironically, I've probably had as many meaningful discussions about the future of lithium and made, you know, presentations and had discussions from the comfort of my home uh, than I have done in a long time. I mean, this this was really a a pretty uh, busy week for me. Uh, And for me, working from home is nothing new. I've been doing it since uh, the fall of uh, 2012. Uh, I obviously, if you follow me on social media, you know, I uh, globetrot quite a bit. I spend about 25% of my time out of the country. But when I am working in the United States, it is mostly in my home office. So uh, I haven't had to make a change, but I know a lot of people that have been asked to work for home are kind of coming to grips with that. And, you know, when you're not supposed to spend a lot of time in crowded places. So now weekends, you know, the next for the next eight to 12 weeks, people are being asked to not go out uh, to the extent that they can avoid it, which gives you a lot more time to listen to podcasts. So I think that this episode is one that if you did listen to it already, I think you ought to give it a, another shot or at least hit the high points. And obviously, you know, from 18 months ago, Benchmark has a lot more followers and fans, and the Global Lithium Podcast has a lot more followers and fans, and I have a lot more followers on social media. So a lot of people that may not have been exposed to this uh, when it was first uh, aired uh, get the chance to listen to it. And again, I think there's some concepts in here that uh, I won't say they're timeless, but I'll say there's absolutely still valid uh, 18 to 19 months later. So with that, let's get into it. One of the great things about hosting the Global Lithium podcast over the last two plus years is that I get to on a regular basis meet some of the most important people in both the lithium industry and then some of the related 
industries to lithium, whether that be cathode or, or batteries themselves. I've learned a lot and uh, will continue to use uh, the podcast as a platform to learn. So why do I think it's important to replay some of the best episodes? I think that uh, this episode with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence's Simon Moores and Andy Miller lays out some business concepts that anyone who wants to invest in this industry or even understand it, even if you're not an investor, uh, some of these concepts are just key to uh, getting how lithium runs and where lithium is going. So what do I mean by that? Before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about Benchmark itself. We talk about when I met Simon in December of 2015 at a Starbucks in Tokyo. It was not the first time I met Simon. I first met Simon in 2008, I believe, but uh, we hadn't had much contact uh, before 2015. In 2015, we sat at a Starbucks on uh, what I call Lithium Road in Tokyo, Japan. And, you know, we both shared what what we were currently up to. Simon had recently started Benchmark. I thought at the time that the only other person involved was Andy Miller. I have since been spanked by Big Ben Ash, who assured me that he was also involved uh, in December of 2015. And, you know, I've in the past dubbed Big Ben Ash as the hardest working male at uh, Benchmark. Uh, Everybody should know that Emily Dunn is actually the hardest working person at Benchmark. So shout out to Emily Dunn. But uh, as often happens, I digress. What are the key concepts that you can learn uh, from listening to this podcast? Well, you can learn about the nuances of pricing. Uh, Why does Benchmark publish so many different prices for just lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide, and spodumene concentrate? Well, it's because there are differences. There are differences in quality. There are regional differences. And to add value globally uh, to industry participants, Benchmark really needs to to carve up the market into different aspects that are meaningful to different players. And we get into the details of that, which I think is is both interesting and important to understand because the the background din we get from a lot of less informed people than benchmark is that, you know, the China price controls everything or everything's going to, you know, be driven by the China price. I've never viewed that as factual I still don't, but we're going to talk about the importance of the China price, but why, even though the China price is important, why why it's not the be-all and end-all. We get into contract pricing and the way the different players view contracts, whether it be an SQM or an Abelmarl or Tanchi or Gangfan. We talk specifically about how a couple of these players view contracting differently. We talk about the misnomer of spot price. And when people talk about the China spot price, really they're talking about the short-term pricing in China because we truly don't have a spot price in lithium. It doesn't really fit the correct definition of a spot price. 
We talk about offtake agreements versus supply agreements. They aren't the same. We talk about the importance to lithium juniors of bankable offtakes. We talk about take or pay contracts. I share some of my past experiences with take or pay where I, I, I did the first take or pay uh, contracts that we had in the lithium industry. And, you know, we compare and contrast them with what's going on today. We talk about how when an industry is looking at 3x growth in the next five or so years, um, why this is such a great opportunity in one sense, why does the industry have to still finance itself? Where are the investors? And that was a problem 18 months ago or 19 months ago when we first recorded this podcast, and it's still a problem today. So we get into that. We talk about how... Uh, benchmark can be a reference price for contracts. We talk about how that would work. It doesn't always have to work the same way in every scenario. So you learn about that. This is just a very good um, basic business primer for the lithium industry. And uh, some people like to skip through podcasts. I'm going to suggest in this particular podcast that you simply listen to the whole episode 20. If you want to fast forward through the intro for 90 seconds, be my guest, but I think you're even going to want to listen to uh, the rapid fire. And, you know, we get into at the end, it's kind of a fun part of the segment where Simon explains the connection between lithium, James Bond and the Atacama. So, uh, I hopefully have highlighted enough interesting things to incent you to listen to the whole episode. And with that, I'm going to talk about a couple other uh, recent happenings. I mean, obviously we have the coronavirus and we've got a lot of people staying at home, but uh, I, I am basically communicating with China every day. And while the United States is kind of on the front end of this uh, pandemic, China's really coming out of it now. I have uh, some business and some shipments coming out of China and, you know, they're being produced They're I would say that China is probably 80 to 90 percent of normal in the lithium industry as far as production goes. Logistics are haven't caught up yet. I, I can't really put a percentage on logistics, but I would say logist, the logistics are lagging uh, the uh, production ramp up. But uh, I I don't think it's going to be long before uh, China's back to normal. And unfortunately, you know, the rest of the world is, is, was behind in getting the virus and will be behind, will be, will be behind in uh, getting back to normal. But uh, you know, I can't, I can't say whether this in the U S and Europe is a, is a 90 day or 120 day thing. But uh, I think that the, the logic you have to, a go by is this too shall pass. And the older you are, uh, the more of these type of things you've seen in the past. So, uh, I mean, I can harken back uh, to uh, the world gone crazy after September 11th when I was living in Japan. And, you know, we came out of that and we'll come out of this. Obviously, different types of uh, crises, but uh, crises we will overcome nonetheless. Uh, couple comments on the recent pricing. Uh, Morgan Stanley continues to beat the drum about uh, some of the 
off-spec material that SQM is selling at very low prices. Uh, I, I really don't think if you're a lithium industry participant, you need to focus on that. I think what you should be focusing on is the most recent data that we have from uh, contract type pricing for battery quality, quality material in both Korea and Japan is prices holding up pretty well. And in China, you've seen Gangfen uh, increase their prices. And uh, Jing Sun, my favorite analyst in China, is also indicating that he thinks that right around Chinese New Year, when this whole virus thing reared its ugly head, pricing also bottomed out and is starting to firm and uh, will ultimately start to rise. Uh, but when we have battery quality price in Korea and Japan at between $9 a kilo and the low 10s, we have hydroxide as high as 14. These are pretty good prices that all the major players uh, can profit from. Now, if certain companies made foolish contracts at low prices that they have to stay with, I mean, you're going to hear some negative, negative talk on earnings calls on pricing. But some of the, I'll continue to say that a lot of times that's those are self-inflicted wounds. Uh, I, I. I am saying that I believe that coming out of the virus, you're going to see flat prices start to rise. And uh, by 2021, it's very possible that we will have a really uh, runaway spot price. I'm not calling that yet, but it could happen. Two other things I want to mention quickly. One is that there's a there's a Twitter handle out there. At Miss, or I think it's at Latin Latin, uh, but the the name on it is Miss Latin. We don't know whether it's a Miss or a, or a Mister, but um, I think if you're a follower of that person, that I think those tweets are losing credibility on a, on a, on a daily basis recently. So just going to comment on that because I think that there's a lot of uh, somebody that has a fairly good following. If they're saying things that are pure speculation, they should at least say they're pure speculation. Uh, one final point is uh, anybody that's uh, a longtime listener to the podcast knows that my favorite Financial Times writer and former podcast guest, Henry Sanderson, uh, is somebody that uh, I read everything he writes. And uh, he he interviewed when he does an article, there's there's various voices with various perspectives heard. And that's totally appropriate. Uh, I recently read an article about the coronavirus and he quoted one person from CRU. Um, and everybody's entitled to their opinion. Absolutely. But when opinions are stated as facts and they're broad brush and wrong, um, I'm going to I'm going to comment on the other side of that. And we had uh, somebody from CRU make the statement that um, China, and this is a quote, China is always going to be the most competitive place to buy battery raw materials. That's absolutely incorrect. Um, China sometimes is the most competitive place to buy certain battery raw materials, but to put a broad brush statement in, it doesn't serve anybody well. And uh, let's just deal with a couple of facts. One is that China is certainly not the low cost producer of lithium chemicals, particularly in lithium carbonate, they on average are the high cost producer and they don't have the ability uh, to out-compete either Chile or Argentina. 
So they de facto are not the most competitive place to source lithium raw materials. The same apl logic applies to hydroxide, although their relative position is a little bit better in hydroxide. So shame on you, CRU, for that misinformation. And with that, I'm just going to say, uh, I think people working from home for the first time, I've been doing it for seven and a half years. I'm either traveling or I'm working out of a home office. I actually love it. So if you're having trouble adjusting to that, good luck. But podcasts are a great, great way to, uh, you know, spend some time uh, while you're trapped at home during this coronavirus time. With that, I leave you with Simon, Andy, and episode 20, Simon Says. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Emily. Welcome to yet another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Hirsch, and I'm joined here in the beautiful London town by a one Mr. Joe Lowry. And as a lifelong Edward R. Murrow fan. And this on, is London. Tonight from London, Edward R. Murrow. This is London. The best, the worst, the first. My study of the lithium market sort of shows how difficult... No, we had a belief in where, where lithium was going. That is probably a key question that any potential investor would be trying to find out right now. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. <laughs> and we're going to play a little game today, Joe. It's uh, Maybe you've heard of it. It's called... Simon says. Well, Emily, there's nothing I liked better as a child on a snowy western New York day than hanging by the fireplace and playing a game of Simon says. Well, Joe, Simon says, introduce our guests. Well, we have here today two luminaries in the world of not just lithium, because these guys are much broader than that. They 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 comment on other things, but we have them here today to drain their brains on the lithium world and i'm with one we are with one simon moores and one andy miller two of the brain trust from benchmark so these guys set the standard when it comes to the lithium world um good morning simon good morning andy how are you guys doing today morning very good thank you very much for having us emily and joe yeah, morning guys good to be here so are you um is this your first experience on a on a podcast? For me, it is. I've never done something as as technical and uh, substantial as this. So I'm quite looking forward to it, actually. Yeah, first time for me as well. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so excited to to be on one. All right, well, guys, welcome. Today we're going to cover. Um, you know, it's it's a very timely um, opportunity to have the 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 gentleman of benchmark. Uh, here to talk with us when we when we're when we're dealing with issues such as what's the what's the lithium price currently where's the lithium price going are we going to have oversupply what's the deal with this China versus not China versus spot versus contract versus hydroxide versus chloride so I am excited to have an opportunity to cover that with the guys who 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 are setting the standard in the industry for how to do that. And we would just say that 
we're proud to have Benchmark on. We, we, we accept no cheap substitutes on the Global Lithium Podcast. And right now there's a lot of, a lot other, of noise. other people out there trying to do what Benchmark does and not doing it nearly as well. Well, Simon says, let's go. Let's play Simon! Simon says, come chase after me. Repeat my life sequentially. Because do that do what I do that do. I want to crack off with what is lithium, right? So when someone talks about lithium, what's the first thing, Simon, that you want to tell them about, you know, what is what is lithium? That's a really good question. Um, the one thing I would say is lithium is not one product. A lot of people think lithium is a singular thing that somebody buys. Um, certainly people new to the industry and... Uh, from my perspective, it's a wide variety of, of, of products. Obviously, carbonate hydroxide, uh, lithium metal, for example, uh, in relation to batteries. Then within that, there's a whole wide range of specifications which are individual products onto themselves. So that would be what I would say, what is lithium? The answer is it is not straightforward. Andy? Yeah, I'd agree. And uh, I think a lot of confusion comes around you know whether this is just like a traditional commodity uh, whether it's actually it's a speciality chemical and I think uh, a big part of the learning curve for people looking at the lithium industry is understanding that and as Simon says knowing that there's lots of different types of lithium out there you work that Simon says that <laughs> flawlessly Thank you. Saw that. appreciate it. Thank you very much well I, I think that is uh, something that I have been trying to educate people on for a long time is that um, it's not a commodity. And it may become a commodity at some point, but we've got a long way to go before you can commoditize it. Um, and there's, you know, the commodity has a definition. And uh, lithium, lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide, which, whichever form you're talking about, really doesn't fit the definition uh, of a commodity. With that background, we now know what Simon thinks that lithium is a lot of different things. Lithium is a lot of different things. One other comment I would make is that, and I've I've noticed this in the last six months, is that people talk about LCE like it's a product. (laughs) I've seen that. And I've I've seen presidents of junior lithium companies. Saying they're going to produce lithium carbonate equivalent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's it's a thing. And you're like, what are you going to produce? And they're like, I'm going to produce LCEs. And you're like. I mean, I love metaphysical, philosophical, you know, definitions, but at the end of the day, it's tough to sell LCE um, because it's lithium carbonate equivalent. So it's sort of a mathematical That's right. um, equivalency rather than a, a sort of a physical good to be delivered. It's a good way of saying, I don't know what I'm going to produce yet, but I'm going to take lithium out of the ground yeah, and I mean, see what happens. So, guys, we we sort of focusing on lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. How many products within each of those categories are important uh, or even researchable, right? How Which of them do you wish you could um, sort of follow and cover and which do you because it's it's possible? Good question. It's what we do here at the Global Lithium Podcast. It makes you think, actually. I yeah. save the shit questions for when Joe and I are just the two of us. 
I think you sort of have to look at lithium for each of the different sources is a is a slightly different product. You know, each has its own impurities. Uh, each is slightly different in terms of exactly what type of product is being produced and coming out the other end. So, it's um, it's you know as many different sources and as many different conversion plants are out there producing slightly different spec material, um, and that's why it's a very you know a complicated area. Um, in terms of understanding, you know, when people try and look at a lithium hydroxide or a lithium carbonate as one thing, or they try and split it down maybe into a battery grade or a technical grade, there are various different specifications around that, and it's uh, it's not one thing. Well, I, I, I think that's a a great a great point, and you know, one of the things that I've also tried to explain to people is that even when a cathode maker has dual supply or, or even three suppliers, the people that in purchasing are trying to get the best price you know they're trying to make a deal they're trying to make their boss happy but the guys in the plant want to minimize the number of times they have to change raw materials i mean they don't like say okay we're going to use abelmarls today and sqms tomorrow and it doesn't matter because it does matter and the, the process has to, usually has to be tweaked when you when you change raw material and if you go into a plant and you you know you start looking for bags and you do you don't you you rarely see two different companies bags anywhere near the production process at a time because people are going to run with one until they they have to do a switch over and you know i that was even true in the glass industry and the glass industry was much more tolerant of uh, varying quality than battery so i mean i think as you guys have gained credibility and a voice. Um, you know, people are looking to you. And I think I thought your article, Andy, on uh, the last post article, however we want to talk about that, your last writing on the topic of, you know, China, not China, and you know why why there isn't why there isn't really likely to be maybe the crash that we thought. And, you know, I, th I think that also what Benchmark's doing now is, you know, you got multiple levels of expertise and now you're, you're showing the world an organization that has credibility. Each player has brings his own voice and own credibility, which I think is really an important thing as you guys have evolved. So, so to spin it back for those of us who maybe didn't read your article, tell us a little bit about why you uh, why you wrote what you did and and you know what what the major takeaway points should be. Sure, I think um, well when we put that out to the market, it was really because we've been hearing, I think everyone's been hearing over the past few months a lot of uh, noise about the situation in China, um, about how the pricing has fallen off there, and what that means for the wider market and. Um, you know, a benchmark we really specialize in what we've tried to build up over the past few years has been a network of contacts around the world, uh, not just speaking to one part of the market, speaking to multiple actors in the market. So, um, you know, we've we've looked at that situation and it, and it is the case that Chinese prices have fallen off. Um, but it was important to us, I think, to make the, the wider point that, you know, you have to look at this in a, a wider perspective, firstly, in terms of the global picture. Uh, what's happening outside of China isn't necessarily what's happening inside China at the moment. Uh, you didn't see the rest of world prices go quite as high as uh, prices went in China over the past couple of years, and you probably won't see them go quite as low as you'll see China dip down to now. So um, it was making that point. And then looking longer term, I think as well, 
it's important for us to look at you know the demand fundamentals are still there and i think there's been a lot of noise about you know where the lithium industry is going and it's it's definitely moving in the right direction that's a good point because we collect prices on 11 different lithium products so it's 11 different prices that a lot of data points and contact points and effort goes in once a month to set these prices and it's only one two of our chinese prices that are the internal Chinese prices that have really fallen off and everything else has remained stable. All right, in the last two months, the rest of the world prices have weakened a little. But the point is that people choose that one Chinese price to represent the industry when the reality is the majority of the industry pricing is still strong. It's still higher than it was last quarter and the quarter before. Well, sure. I mean, uh, you know, a price falling off a cliff sells a newspaper rather than, you know, we follow 11 prices. So look, going back to that, you follow 11 prices are, is it, how many carbonate, how many hydroxide and how many metal and or other? So we publish uh, six uh, lithium carbonate prices, four lithium hydroxide and a spodumene concentrate price. And of the hydroxide and the carbonate, how many are, are sort of what the industry wants to call battery grade or, or how many of these prices are relevant to the battery market? So what we've really done is we've we've tried to break that down. The the issue about a battery grade and a technical grade, and I know I've heard Joe speak a lot on this in the past. But You're about to get yelled at, so. Uh, yeah, we, I, I say that with hesitancy because I know Joe's <laughs> Joe's view on uh, on that issue. But the only real market we've broken that down into is where we see a, a distinct difference in the pricing um, structures, and that's in the Chinese market where there's been this sort of uh, a gap open up between the. Uh, battery grade or sales going into the battery market and a more te- and a technical grade material um, but I agree with Joe you know Joe's comments I've heard him say before in the sense that what is a battery grade and what is a technical grade really what a battery grade is what will be accepted by the cathode and the battery producers and and the specifications for that can vary so it's a it's a loose uh, term and we're gonna we're gonna go into Joe yelling at Andy go on Joe I I would never give it to him I I, I only <laughs> I save that for you, Emily. I I, I respect uh, Andy. Anyway, no, I, I think the, the you know what I've enjoyed watching is benchmark. You know, taking a step back, trying to figure out what's really happening, and then you know talking about it with with credibility. Um, because you know, I I consciously chose you know when when i i talked to simon i think when we we reconnected uh was in december at starbucks in tokyo uh, a few years ago when i had 200 twitter followers you're wearing a suit that day as well yeah it was probably the last time i ever ever wore a suit (laughs) in anywhere um except for my daughter's wedding um yeah so i've watched um you know, you guys learn and develop. And, you know, if you look at what I've said about a lot of the other people that are doing price pricing, I, I don't have a whole lot of respect, you know, for the the whole litany around the China price because a lot of people are just focused on that. And, I mean, there's a couple of things about that that have always bothered me. As One is that, you know, the China price run-up percentage-wise was actually greater in 2005 to 2008, uh, than it than it was in 2015 to 2016, and I always felt that 
pricing had gotten way ahead of itself in China on the spot, and there was no justification for the kind of margin even the high-cost guy was making, and it, it was going to come back to earth, and what was the catalyst for that going to be? And it, oddly enough, instead of being the tsunami of spodumene from Australia, it was a large slug of bad product from Shanghai um, that has, you know, made its way around the market. And you had some other forces, you know, uncertainty about incentives. And, you know, what this has drawn attention to what's been going on in China for the last decade is it's battery, the battery supply chain goes and fits and starts. And one area gets ahead of the other area. And in in pricing's always been more volatile in China and you you captured you captured it well but the, the other thing that bothers me is that I mean I had a guy tweet at me last night well you can't argue with the fact that the price in China has gone down I said I'm not arguing with it it has gone down it's a fact but it's a fact that doesn't matter and if you listen to the the SQM well, we'll listen to that this afternoon but saw what they reported their price was up in Q2 over Q1 slightly but it was still up it wasn't down Abomarl never tells us what the price is but they say their price is up and i know their price is up because their prices were so ridiculously low previously that they had to come up and that's the only way luke can manage his earnings the way he does and then fmc's price was up so why is the sky falling I want to. I have a couple questions about the, some of the terms that we use in this industry, and I want to. I want to personally hear what Simon says. Um, when people talk about, we've got China versus outside of China. We've got contract versus spot. What percentage is China versus not in China, and then what percentage is spot versus not spot, and what portions of contracts are in China versus not China? I mean, it feels kind of like alphabet soup. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, it's a really good point because it really depends how you define what spot is and what contract is. Because really, from our perspective, spot really doesn't exist in lithium. Now, I've got a definition of spot because I, I was looking at this. Get so those notes. I got, I got some notes here, and I, there's actually just, a definition. I'm just so impressed at how well prepared you are. I feel bad for our that I'm less podcast. prepared. <laughs> I've never made notes before. Actually, this is this is one of the first times. Apart from my maths exam, uh, which I got caught out on. So, uh, okay, so what is a spot commodity? A spot commodity is a commodity up for immediate trade, immediate delivery. So it's ringing up a lithium producer and saying, I need this speck of lithium carbonate, deliver it now, and I pay you now. That's a spot market. Now, I really don't know, maybe a handful of trades that happen in China are like that, but really everything else or at least let's say 90% of lithium supply doesn't happen like that. It happens in some form of a contract where there's a, a contract that's agreed, depending on the length of time. That could be three months, six months, could be a year. It could be multi-year contracts. There's a volume agreed, a product that's agreed, but the price is still fluid and negotiated within that contract so terms it's, so rather than look at it like contract versus spot it's more like a like a rather than a binary decision space it's more of a spectrum where you've got contracts that are more fixed and contracts that are more flexible yes that's the way we view it really Andy I don't know what your thoughts are on on that but yeah I'd agree I think um I think the really 
difficult thing to get across to people looking at this industry from the outside is that fact that there isn't there isn't a spot market. There's some shorter term deals that go on in the market, primarily in China. You don't see as much of it outside. And then it's really like Simon, like Simon says again, um, you have a uh, it's really supply agreements. The, the vast majority, some of them, some agreements, but a small amount as well, are long term, multi year fixed price. But that's very few companies in there. So what is the breakdown between long-term, very fixed prices? You know, tell me about the the sort of the three baskets you would put the majority of contracts in. And then, you know, what percentage of the market is in each basket? Well, take the, take the two largest. Okay, two baskets. Now, take well, one take, of my take baskets. Take the two largest too. suppliers outside of China. Abomarle has a strategy and SQM has a strategy. And Abomarle has been very clear. They're trying to go long-term on everything. And so they they have almost all of their business. I mean, if you were to believe Luke, it would be all the business now. Of course, Luke says one thing one day and one thing the next, so it's really hard to parse that. But um, And Patricio was very clear about SQM's policy. They don't go out a, more than a year on anything, and most of it's shorter than that. And it's some of it's six and some of it's quarters. And I think that used to be the difference because – Back in the day, uh, when I was at FMC, uh, we did al- almost all annual contracts. Even if we had a five-year umbrella deal, which is the longest deal I ever did, pricing was revisited once a year. And then when when there was a spike in prices about 10 years ago, I changed it to every quarter. And then we kind of went on quarterly pricing. So, But in China... Every deal I ever did, I have literally hundreds of contracts I've signed. And everything I did back in China was LC, because I, I was bringing it in from, from outside. It was all LC. Everything every everything had to be signed. You know, we had a boilerplate deal. But those tended to be, the Chinese like to do quarters, because they were always thinking the price was going to go down next quarter. And then I've told the story many times about what happened in Thailand, in 2016, where I was selling, coincidentally, lithium hydroxide for $26,850 at the same time I was selling the same people lithium hydroxide that I'd done on an agreement. I tried to get them to sign for all the containers for about $7,000. And that became, I believe I sold spot for a very brief time in 2016 because I had access to some Chinese material and I just said, okay, who wants it? <laughs> and it was it was almost like an auction. But so yeah, cor- I don't believe there's a spot market. Is there correlation between what people say in China and rest of the world versus spot and contract? Like are Chinese prices spot prices and rest of the world more contract-like? Or Yeah, I, I think China is about as close as you're going to get to a spot market in that sense, uh, even though we say the spot market doesn't exist. It's far more aggressive uh, the way business is done internally in China, the contracts are And how much of... So we use, you used a 90-10, 90% more contract type behavior, 10% more spot behavior. Would I be then making an illogical jump if I said rest of world accounts for 90% of the lithium market and 10% of the market happens in China? What, in terms of split of LCE in terms of, total? Yeah, in terms of, of LCE total. Like, what? how does the balance between China and not China... 
um, you know, what percentage of the world? What percentage of the world's lithium, lithium is sold is in China? Sold in right China. Now and sold outside of China. Um, so we have we have lithium carbonate last year. China accounted for about 40% of global production last year, and then hydroxide, they were a higher proportion, around two-thirds of global okay. production. I was in China. Um, in terms of sales, uh, there's a, they're a growing part of the market, and China is the, the number one consumer of, of lithium today. So um, then also the most lithium sold in China is on a more medium-term contract basis than at a more spot-type behavior? Uh, within China, as in being produced by a Chinese company and sold in a Chinese company, it's it's not long term contract. It's, it's so. Fa- tell me about the difference shorter. between lithium produced in China and sold in China versus lithium produced outside of China and sold in China. I just think it's a the way business is done is different. The way um, you look at, as Joe was saying, SQM, the way they would do their contracts, which are year or under. The way Albemarle likes to do them, which is a year or over. Um, to the way China. Uh, does it, which is probably on a quarterly basis or even some spot sales. But I would say I know that one company in China tried to introduce a contract last year, a longer term contract, and that didn't um, necessarily stick. So within China, it's it's far more like a spot market, but I would say the majority is still done under a contract, but the contracts would be three months, six months. What happens in China also is that it's like the lithium stocks, you know, sentiment goes negative. And, and when, once people start thinking the price is going down, they don't want to sign up for any more than their immediate need because they're, they're hoping the price goes down. I mean, I, I've lived through that a couple of times. And so you just, it's, it's a, the Chinese market goes much more on short-term psychology then Korea and Japan want they want to keep big inventories. They're afraid of their supply chain. They, you know, want to sign up. And you know, I, I can't really tell you where I got the information from, but I mean, you know, the the dynamic right now of the way a couple of the large lithium companies are treating each market is totally distinctly different. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's it is amazing how. Uh, the the news of junior mining companies around the world, not just Australia but in Canada, does make its way into China, and they're taken at face value. And and these are mines which are not built; they're pieces of land. Yet, customers or lithium industry within China, some uh, players think that that is going to happen next year, and and that affects. Well, that's what they prices. say, right? I mean, why would a lithium? Why would a junior mining company lie to the market? Of course, yeah. This is well. I don't think that it's an lot, amazing s- discovery. Some might lie. I think the majority actually believe, you know, the the plans. And I guess they're the first people that have to believe they're going to build this mine and uh, and and do what they say. But I, I do think that in terms of sentiment and the story, and even headlines, the Tesla headlines go very far and very wide within China as well. That people that does affect the lithium price, which within China is far more fluid. Outside of China. Uh, it's less so. What do you, when you look down the down the road, where where do you guys, if you take a position that you want to state publicly, you know, I've said the new normal for the next few years is going to settle in a twelve to fourteen dollar band, and whether that's eleven to fifteen, I mean, I I'm just framing something that's that's logical to me, which is actually substantially below where SQM's average is right now. So, you know, I had to explain to somebody last night that. 
So I'm actually saying lithium prices are going to go down too. I just don't believe they're going to crash. I believe they're going to settle, which is a much different thing. And that's driven by cost curves. Well, I mean, because at the end of the day, once you get supply, if you, you know, in the next five years, get supply really in balance, then you're going to go back to a cost curve world, which is what the lithium industry has been in for most of its life. Um, so when you look at it, I mean, what do you, what do you, what kind of prognostication if you were going to, if, if, if somebody was going to, well, I don't, I don't want you guys to work for free. I know you, 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 you charge for your services, but if you can give us any indication of where you see price going. Yeah, we do. I think we'd agree that we, uh, you know, prices are going to settle. I think this crash that you've seen in China or the big decline you've seen in China the first half of the year, we don't expect that to continue going down by those rates for the rest of the year. And I think you're also getting, coming into the industry, a lot of the new material coming in is a lot higher cost. Um, so you're not going to go down to where we were 2015. You're not going to go anywhere near. I think we put out something a couple of months ago saying that the lowest we could see prices going is, is in nine and a half thousand dollars a ton but we are longer term we still see things higher than that in the low yeah. low teens you can look at it from a theoretical perspective where you do look at uh, cost of production and you know the very economical way and uh, of doing things which which we do uh, we hired Andy Lane and from Wood McKenzie recently to to really kick this off for us um, but then you can also look at things from kind of a real world perspective which is what I try and do more so mainly because I don't want to be sitting looking at spreadsheets uh, all day every day and for me that I do see prices in the next 18 months settling back to what we call a, a more real level which actually would be slightly higher than what Joe says I do think the bottom would be 12 but I think it's actually going to be a wider range I think I think it'll be 12 to probably about 17 and a half uh, which is and we're talking carbonate uh that's all LCEs actually. So you have the higher end of the hydroxide. Okay, okay, okay. Because when I say twelve to fourteen, what's your, what's your hydroxide? That's just I I say the premium's going away to to an extent. I mean, I, there there may be some difference, but I think a premium that's been as high as five or six thousand mm-hmm. a ton is going down more like to fifteen hundred. So to three, depending, and it's going to be a gradual slide as capacity that's like 2020 onwards yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah, my number yeah i mean i i can get i can get to a 16 17 hydroxide and if you if you blend it averaged it, mm. i mean maybe my number is slightly lower than yours but it's not much i mean it's, it's also it depends and when, we're both going to be wrong so it's just yeah. well exactly it, it depends when those and those longer term offtake contracts start kicking yeah. in and actually becoming reality because that tell will then me, affect the price. Tell me about offtake agreements and give me an overview of the state. Do you is need that, to jump out? Is that for you? It's not for me. Joe, is that for you? No. Simon. It's not for me. Offtake agreements are a big part of a lot of other uh, minerals industries. Um, what kind of offtake agreements have been common in the lithium space in the past, and what kind of changes have we seen, and what do you expect going forward? In the past, offtake agreements haven't really existed. They've been called offtake agreements, but they haven't been true offtake agreements. What do you mean, Simon? I know. It's, it's, what uh, does Simon say about that? It's breaking news, isn't it? It's um, it's amazing. I'd say from two thousand when the junior market in the lithium industry first started to probably until maybe the start of this year, really, um, they weren't true off days. They weren't 
Uh, they talked about volume. They didn't really talk about price that much. They weren't uh, binding. They weren't take or pay contracts. And so, you know, Lithium Juniors couldn't go to a bank and say, this is worth money. So they wouldn't be then lent the money to build they the mine. They weren't bankable, eh? That sounds about right, yeah. And uh, But this year, you've seen the start of take or pay contracts. And um, What do you mean by a take or pay contract? So it means either a lithium junior will do a deal with a, a battery company, for example. This is, let's say, Namaska and Northvolt. And um, or that's a battery company to be, and it's a lithium producer to be, but it's still quite interesting, the, the contract. Take these two, for example. If Northvolt have agreed three to 5,000 tons of lithium hydroxide, if, um, if they don't want the product, they have to pay for it. They have to pay a certain fee for not taking the product. So they either take the lithium hydroxide or they pay yeah. money to Namaska. So it's, it's a win-win. I did... Uh, take or pay um, with a large Japanese trading company back in 2008-2009 when... You're a real renaissance man when, of the off-take well, agreement, I came out of the natural gas industry where take or pay contracts are very common. And this was when Tesla was just starting to get going and Sumitomo Metal Mining had a, had a big demand and they kind of got ahead of themselves on estimating what their demand was and they... They wanted basically 60% of my former employees' hydroxide capacity in one year, and they wanted a commitment. I said, guys, you know, guys like me get fired for uh, signing contracts and and then foregoing, because I had to forego a bunch of grease tenders mm-hmm. to do this deal. So I said, you know, there's two things you got to do. First of all, you got to pay a premium, and it has to be a take or pay. And their lawyers spent a lot of time on it, and... I did just exactly what Simon said. In the old days, you could have a take or pay where you either took it or you paid the whole price. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that was fair because the way the market was at the time, I knew it was a timing difference and I, I could sell that. I was going to be able to sell the stuff. So um, to kind of make it easier for people to sign this, I think basically they would have had to pay me, I think the price was 8500 at the time and they were going to have to pay me maybe 5500 a ton for what they didn't take. And I knew that even if I had to fire sale it, I was still going to make more money on the leftovers if there were any. And oddly enough, the last one of these taker pays I did was I got I got fired that year. And the other person who was part and party to that firing actually enforced one of these agreements. And... Um, you know, he, he made him take it. And uh, I w- see, I, I always just kind of laid off too. I mean, it, it, a take or pay agreement in my mind at the time was insurance against calamity. But I always tried to be reasonable about if they didn't need it in that time period, that I would roll it for a month or two. Or, I, you know, just, just try to be reasonable about mm-hmm. it. Well, um, the person who was left after I was gone made this company buy all of it so he could make the fourth quarter of that year look good. And lo and behold, they didn't buy again from FMC for almost an entire year. <laughs> so a uh, little color to the old take or pay concept. And so Simon and Andy, why do you think, why am I allowed to just call anything an off-take agreement? You know, everybody's been signing off-take agreements with Tesla. 
mm-hmm. for example. Um, can I just call any old piece of paper an offtake agreement? If I'm like, sure, Joe, if you ever make lithium and I ever make a battery, I'll buy it for a price undetermined. I mean, a lot of these are very wishy-washy, loosey-goosey PR, uh, um, sort of more of like a more of like a, a vision board than a a contract. Yeah, up until this point, they have been. And, um, can you call it anything an offtake? Well, there are regulations that say you can't, but people have been. And they're deliberately... You can tell when they're questionable deals or they're not really written into stone is when there's a lack of detail. Um, another one is a letter of intent. It's a letter, it's a handshake, it's... A moo. Yeah. A memorandum of understanding. Mem- memorandum of understanding. memorandum of understanding. Exactly. And you're like, and, and while I appreciate, well, actually, that's what junior mining companies have been stuck with because ultimately they've had to wait for the supply chain, the buyers, the, the cathode makers, the electric vehicle makers to, to start putting out bullish figures. They've been waiting for the rest of the supply chain to mature. So that, that's been their only option until this year. Well, let's let's talk about what happened in Australia, which we touched on in one of our our, our um, news podcasts. Uh, I believe it was Pilbara, who came under scrutiny for having an off taker who wasn't able to buy the product. I think you're talking about Altura, and um, yeah, I, I I think. But since um, in the Pilbara region. James Brown and Chris Evans are buddies of ours, and Ken Brinson's a buddy of mine, and I'm I'm not exactly sure. The Pilbara region is a safe bet. Yes, one of the companies you're... operating in the Pilbara region of Australia. Yeah, I, I I think there was uh, some comment about the the fact that they had talked about an offtake agreement, and the, the offtaker was in financial trouble and would would not necessarily be able to fulfill his duties and was that a disclosable event or something but again i'm not looking at documents and i don't want to make a statement that well, the, isn't materially correct we don't we don't do that here but as an example i mean is this the type of how how credit worthy does an off taker have to be for it to be termed an off take agreement and do you see that getting better or worse if you're trying to i mean if you're a publicly listed company and you know the rules in the ASX and the TSX aren't necessarily the same as the New York Stock Exchange and the Nasdaq for or things. the AIM. <laughs> We're in London, Joe. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that education, Emily. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna purport that you have sold your material at a price and that an investor can rely on the fact that if you make this product, it's going to sell at a certain price, but you already know that that's not going to happen, and there's a paper trail, then you're probably going to get a. Uh, at least a kind of, gee, could you clarify this? Uh, do you want to hear what Simon says? What does Simon say? Um, what do I say? That's a good question. I think with the take-or-pay contract situation, which is a good sign for the lithium industry, previous versions of that would have been MOU, LOI, letter of intent, um, uh, an off-take, which isn't really an off-take. Um, all of this is... It shows the lithium industry is maturing, and it shows that um, the the customers are now catching up with the belief that they have to 
invest in non-producing mines. They have to invest in the next generation of lithium uh, mines. Yeah, and up until now, I suppose that's what a lot of these development stage companies, that's all they've been able to achieve with the end users is is whether it's a letter of intent, uh, an MOU. Um, but, you know, the industry is going to need a lot more investment over the next few years and they are going to need some of these new mines to come into production and for them to make a case that, you know, they have a, a solid business plan. Um, I think it definitely shows intent from the downstream. And interestingly, even if they're... Sorry, Sam. No, no, go oh. for it, Karen. <laughs> Even if they're not, even if it's not almost, uh, the most solid of agreements, I think it shows some. You know, there is some intent there from an end user to to potentially uh, secure some of that lithium material, and I think that's a positive for the industry. Yeah, sorry, I was just waving my finger in the air. I remember <laughs> the point I was trying to say in that last section um, with um, take or pay contracts. That that's a good sign for the industry. I I believe those because it's a contract before I had to take everything else with a pinch of salt all the others that weren't take or pay you take with a pinch of salt the real deal is who's your deal with uh, is it somebody that can actually use a lithium that like a converter for example or a lithium chemical producer is it an active uh, a well-known lithium chemical producer like Tianqi Gangfeng uh, General Lithium then if you're deals with people that can actually use the material, that's a huge positive. But really, that that gives me enough confidence that material is going to be used and the contract's going to be fulfilled. And I think if your deal is, even with an auto company, you're still going to have an issue with where you're going to get that material converted to the chemical you need. And so even deals with auto companies, it's a huge, still a huge positive because they're in the supply chain, but it's not as convincing as a Gangfeng Lithium or a Tianqi, in my opinion. And when you look at some of the more uh, creative financing that's come into the industry, and I'm, I'm sort of talking about the, the, the sort of royalties or streaming agreements, how does that impact the, the offtake agreements, right? How does having someone be, you know, skimming a percentage off the off of the top or skimming the percentage that's a rude way to say it but taking a percentage of the sale price impact these offtake agreements right how did the two parties share those royalty or those streaming um percentages and does it does it uh, influence these two parties to put the price lower or or not really at all um I, I don't know if it. I don't know if it directly impacts the parties. I think, I think it all goes back to the point, you know, that a lot of these new development stage companies are having to look at different ways of getting financing coming into the market, and I think it's something we see across all the, the battery raw materials that we cover, is that the the investment side of things maybe isn't where the industries are, are approaching in the next two to three years. So co companies are having to look at different alternative ways at financing these projects. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing to have those different models come into the industry. I think it's just a necessity of where the, the market is at the moment. When you have to scale at the level lithium has to, you need a number of different mechanisms to raise money. It won't just come from one source. And until now, it's come from the industry, which is quite amazing when you really think about it, that the importance of lithium to a whole fleet and generation of electric vehicles and energy storage uh, devices, that the lithium industry is, 
industry has been left to itself to fund itself until now and so um i think that's an important point what do you think about the whole oversupply scare that everybody's talking about and and how that's you know impacted the the stock prices of the lithium companies themselves especially the juniors let's let's before we get into that let's take just a step back on historically how contracts were done in the industry and i think what the the same way in the same way you guys spitting on their hands it's the same way that spot isn't really spot is it is used in the lithium lexicon um, offtake is used where it's really supply agreement. What's the difference, and, Joe? Uh, well, historically, the lithium industry had established players, and supply agreements were purely, usually, defensive mechanisms to make sure that you got the last look at a price. Like, I would have my customers in the old days at FMC and foot. Rockwood, Chemitel, whatever you want to call them. The competitor had his kind of cozy guys, but they always wanted to have dual supply. So the game was, I want 70, I want, your annual demand is thought to be 1 million pounds because we were using pounds back in the dark ages. And, but if you don't do that, I I want 70% of your annual demand. Okay. And then you would have a price. And then the price clause would say they have a meter release clause that said if a legitimate competitor, which in that day was like one party, came in and offered a price and you could show that offer and it was a valid offer for a similar term, there was language around that, that you got to meet that price. And if you didn't meet that price, you released the volume. And I mean, you know, when... SQM came out. So when we had a three-party world, you know, basically at that time, um, the big three. Mm-hmm. When SQM was entering, the year before they entered, what well, was Chemital, which became Rockwood, which is Albemarle now. I thought it was Foot. And it was Foot before that. They went out and locked up as much volume as they could with really low prices just because they were, I mean, Albemarle just saw SQM coming. And didn't want their volume taken. So they, they they lowered the price. And then they also had a meter release. So if SQM went nuclear, they could still say, okay, we have the right to that volume if we'll meet whatever price it is. And so now when, when Abelmarl talks about, oh, we've got floors and we've got this, I don't believe, it, it, maybe they believe that'll work. But if we did go into an oversupply situation... I believe Abelmarl has their volume protected, but I don't believe they have their price legitimately protected because I, I know a lot of the parties involved on the other end, and trust me, they're not going to pay a dime more for their lithium. If there's an oversupply situation... <clears throat> They'll release. Well, no, they Abelmarl will, will not release, but they won't, you know, they, they try to play the, the story that we've got a floor locked in. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, let's just say they had a floor of 10,000 a ton. If they got legitimate, the, 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 the buyer is got legitimate offers. It's six thousand. Do you really think he's going to pay Albemarle ten? I don't believe for Can a minute. Can Albemarle sue them? Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna go to China and sue somebody. You're gonna go to you're gonna go to Seoul and uh, take take your biggest customers to court. I don't think so. 
I think what Albemarle are good at is looking after what they say they're good at, but, but what I believe they are actually is 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 understanding that it's a long term game as well, and that you have to look after your customers because you've got to make you've got to be fair to your customers because you're going to need them for a long time, and you've it's a huge growth industry, so everyone really that should be thinking they have to work together lithium producers cathode manufacturers and the battery guys especially now if you think about how these different sections of the supply chain build up it takes seven to ten years to build a lithium mine that's let's say with all the money in the world you can do it in five and hope that the product is at spec on launch which it most probably won't be but let's say it is best case scenario five with all the money in the world cathode um sorry a battery plant can take 18 months to build if you have all the equipment and then building a new electric vehicle will be anywhere from 7 to 12 years from scratch so it's not the car well it's the, the car guys sort themselves out because that's what the auto industry does that's what they specialise in we don't have to worry about the battery plants being there the capacity for the battery space it's, it's cathode plants and lithium producers that should be working together yeah it's um I think the irony of Albemarle's strategy is that you know, I think Simon got it right. And, and, you know, I think it was a bit accidental in, in one case because they went out and contracted in the, in the fourth quarter of 2015 for 2016 at low pr- What was a 20% price increase, which a month after they signed those deals turned out to be a horrifically low price. And then Luke tried to morph it into a strategy and say that was his strategy when it was just a mistake. And, you know, the, the other irony was when he started talking about he was going out five or six, or, you know, we were going long term. And, you know, I know for a fact that a lot of those contracts back then were annual. And uh, so there was a lot of fast and loose played with the facts. And, uh, and that's an- another point, actually, just into what I call super long term contracts, which is anything really up. A- three years and above let's say three to ten years which is what's been reported in the, the news that some ten lith- years lithium yeah yeah one, one lithium one uh article i think it was bloomberg actually said that one producer wanted to do a 10-year contract with an auto company and actually what i think that, mount, that couldn't mount, fix a price that would have to there'll be something in there of, of course there'll be some price mechanism mechanism in there but it's quite an interesting strategy if a major wanted to expand like add another 25,000 ton LCE line um, onto their uh, outside of their plans well then you know one auto company can have all of that um, providing they sign this super long term contract and it's actually a way of funding additional expansions outside of what they're already planning Um, I think that's why you need a price index though well so how many to credibly (laughs) do those deals yeah it's true you have to have an agreement on what the price is or that you you can't lawyers will never even let the contract get signed because you started going that far out and it's like I literally had a contract once that said in the absence of disagreement the price is whatever I say it is how long were your gas contracts um that's because because the FERC was what is the FERC? Federal Energy Regulatory Commission was was so involved in regul you know gas regulation and back in that and your your rate base and all that. I I didn't do any super long ones, but if you were going to develop a gas field, <laughs> you know 
the long long term nature of that you know certainly came into play you know if you had to have billions of dollars to develop a huge gas field and you know you're the pipeline guy and so um i don't know what the longest ones were but you know that that scenario when when so much capital had to be deployed and then it was you were selling into a regular you know federally regulated situation too so that was a that was a little bit different than the wild west of of lithium um so but i mean the, the concept played well because um you know the, the other the other thing going back to that um long-term agreement was the buyer tends to say if i'm signing up for the long term i should get a discount and then I took a chapter out of the Japanese, old, you know, some of the Japanese in the good times said, you know, the more you buy, the more you pay. Because, um, you know, if you want, the more you want to tie my capacity, it reduces my degrees of freedom and what I can participate in. So I have to, I have to be compensated for, because you didn't pay for my capacity, I paid for my capacity. Um, and yeah, it, it, we had some interesting discussions back then because at that point in time, the other thing FMC had when I was do, was working for FMC was that for the Tesla supply chain, nobody nobody else's hydroxide could be used. So I had a, I had a bully pulpit when I was doing the take or pays, but I, at least I tried to be nice about it. I always apologize when I raise price too, uh, and and that's the point. Everything was on the table when you're having lithium deals that are an order of magnitude bigger than what they were three years ago and it literally is it's like you see the gang thing uh deal with lg ken that forty-seven thousand tons right yeah 47 six i think 47 six, which is absolutely incredible over a three-year period it's four actually because it's, it's, it's january 1st of 19 so it's 19 order 20 19, 21 22 order 22 just the size of that is is incredible and well that that is more than any individual supplier's capacity, annual capacity was three years ago. If you think of it in those yeah. terms. And it's um, the big three's capacity when they announced the Gigafactory, because when I sent Tesla the your, your screwed slide, um, the entire productive hydroxide capacity of the big three was 18,000 tons. And the Gigafactory was going to need 25-ish to 27, depending on how you frame the usage. So, so yeah, all, things have changed a lot. And, uh, and so, Evan Gangfen being the guys who who did did that deal um, just shows you how the world's changed. And that's an insight to where we're going. That isn't, that isn't the end. That's just the start of this new era of huge lithium contracts and when you need this new supply when you need these new deals when the auto companies are starting to lock in actual supply for now uh and and into the future you need to look at every single option including 10-year contracts and and on to on that point when one of the interesting things i i, I heard you refer not only to the price but the concept of pricing mechanisms. How many different pricing mechanisms are currently in use in lithium contracts that you've seen? Um, and what kind of pricing mechanisms do you see in the future? So I view this, before I get Andy's uh, comments on this, I view it as uh, twofold. You've got uh, lithium reference price, 
which is what Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, us, produces. And that is each month we produce an independent price to a stringent methodology. People know how we collect it. People know um, pretty much who we speak to on both the supply and the demand side, and they trust, more importantly, that it's an accurate reflection of the prevailing price. So we produce this um, reference price, and, and the way that's used is people log onto our website or print off the, the monthly PDF. Does it say Simon Says at the top? It doesn't yet, but actually I might. We'll, we'll consider that. I'll have to speak to the design. Yeah, we It's not the, the worst design. idea. I didn't think about that. That's a bloody good idea. Um, they take this piece of paper and um, use it in the negotiations. And that's actually what happened. You know, we were had a lot of meetings in Las Vegas and it was very interesting. And we had some very candid discussions with the whole supply chain. Um, that, that that is the way they're used at the moment. And this price has only been around for two years, just over two years. But it was our intention to specifically collect them for this reason. Now, so then you can, you can put in a contract that the percentage the change price. will be whatever benchmark said that's the goal see that's a, and, and that's when it becomes a benchmark yeah. price which is why well, the company is called benchmark, benchmark exactly. and that was the goal four years ago and and we're nearly there because lithium hasn't used anything like this before so yeah i want to just sort of make the difference between the bench the price versus the index versus the mechanism right so essentially clarify a little bit what joe was talking about when it comes to you know the the percent change on something right well, you There's can you can use it in a number of ways but the way we were always wanting to have it was we did this contract as of this day benchmark says the price you know our price doesn't have to be what your price i mean the, the agreed upon price doesn't have to be anywhere near what their price is but then you use the it's their rate of point. change as the mechanism to move whatever you agreed on up or down. Yeah, and it could be, and that's why we have our lith a weighted lithium index in there. We have our individual price grades. We have a lithium average weighted price in there. There's a number of ways when you collect all this data that you can use it. And every company is different. Every battery producer we speak to has a different flavor on what they want and how they want to use it. And and that's what Andy collects the price. Andy and his team collect the prices on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. My job is actually working with these battery producers to let them understand and trust what we do to help them say, actually, this is the best way you need to use them in these contracts. So actually, my job now um, for the last year and going forward is as more of like an independent advisor saying, use our price, use our price data, but this is a number of ways you can do it. Tell me how I can help. But, but they don't necessarily have to even agree that uh, they can say, well, we, you know, we want a better price than that. So if, if Benchmark says the price is 16, these guys can say, okay, our deal's at 15 for the first year. But we're using Benchmark's rate of change to mm -hmm. adjust it each year on the three-year term, up or down. Up or down. And so when you look at our, another application or another uh, group that is um, in the dark on pricing, um do you talk to governments who would be needing to use a price to calculate a royalty? Yes. In the past, we have. It hasn't really been an issue for the last two years, I would say, but um, in the past, we have. And actually, when you look at the types of companies that come to us for information, it's really varied now, really varied. But I would say governments would be probably the fourth or fifth category um, 
Andy, I don't know what you think on that. Yeah, well, obviously, like you say, for the royalties, it's becoming a it's becoming again a big issue in, yeah. in the industry, and and uh, you know, for those governments, they need an independent price as much as the industry needs an independent price. So, we do, yeah, we definitely do speak to those. But as Simon says, we we work a lot with the industry. Uh, Simon says again, I've got the Emily smile. Yeah, it's catching. Um, we work primarily with the industry, you know, we're speaking to buyers, sellers, traders, people involved in the market. And Simon's working a lot with them to get the prices of there. But for investors, it's very important to, to have an independent price and for governments, as you say, for royalty payments and, and that type of thing. And you can't collect these prices if you don't travel and meet the industry and also know what you're talking about. Know if somebody's going to lie to you or somebody's going to try and you know sway your prices and you know it's a constant judgment um process of of data collection and and analysis that well it's why the others can't do it and we can simon says simon says um well i think that we've covered we've covered a lot of ground uh, i wanted to just the last thing i wanted to ask was the you know what's what have you guys seen or what is you know i've heard that you travel around the world what what's the response to and what's the the sort of impetus for this whole oversupply drama especially given the fact that morgan stanley both puts these reports out and appears to be advising on on these transactions what's your what does simon say the dark arts of uh, the financial industry i don't even try and claim to understand it i don't even try to understand it because it the, the analysis uh morgan stanley um is one of them probably the most extreme but i don't even Macquarie's pretty extreme <laughs> yeah. thunderdome joe yeah i remember i remember this this podcast um don't watch the film by the way not a good movie i watched the the mad max thunderdome perhaps you've got something to trade after all keep talking 24 hours of your life. In return, you'll get back what was stolen. This is like from the yeah, it's not good. early 80s, is it? No, Mad really, Max. really skip that one. It's 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 old. Tina yeah. Turner in her pomp, and that's crazy. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't even try to understand what the, the financial industry uh, anal- uh, researchers do or why they put out some of the conclusions. Um, it's probably, I would like to think, due to a lack of time to research these because they have to cover a lot of commodities but this is why we're there to help a lot of these uh, brokers who put research out um morgan stanley weren't, weren't one of them but it's different to the lithium industry don't think that bank research and lithium stock prices is the story of the lithium industry usually it's actually the opposite of what's really happening and that's why people pay for information that we collect. We have a business where people pay good money for uh, subscription information and data and analysis and coming to our conferences because they know that there's noise out there. It's increasing noise. And um, I think people are becoming wise now that they should only trust a few people. For well, yesterday, Miss Emily and I were having a intro meeting with a, uh, a lithium a junior, and who will go unmentioned, but they asked, since, you know, there's so many of these conferences, which conferences should we go to? And this was a Joe says, 
Joe says to go to Simon's. Good answer. That's the right answer. Conference. <laughs> and uh, so I just wanted to put that plug in for the Cathodes Conference uh, coming up on the 24th and 25th of October in Newport Beach, California. And that's what Andy says. It's excellent. Okay. Oh, I want to say my, my movie quite about the water okay thing. yeah i mean you know we we really this haven't is, you know we've we've, we've there's just so much to cover in so little time i forgot about it until so now. okay this morning you probably haven't been on twitter today Ellie. i highly haven't eating. been on twitter this week um, joe <laughs> it's it's hard to get all those calories in and uh, anyway yeah, so simon tweeted this morning that he was gonna have a reveal okay so you got a WhatsApp Simon it to says. me if you well, want. Well, the the development. Me to read it. <laughs> the development on Twitter was uh, about the increasingly stringent water rights in the Atacama, which could significantly impact SQM and Albemarle's operations there. And water rights have always been an issue in in, in Chile. It's never gone away. But my interesting fact on this was: Do you remember the James Bond movie Quantum of Solace? Yes. The second Daniel Craig movie. Everyone loved Casino Royale, so they forget about the second one. Is this the one where the woman was dipped in oil? That is the one. So, very interesting fact. That movie was 2008. It was based on lithium. So, the movie was filmed... The movie is basically about, actually, water and blah, blah, blah. But the, they filmed it in Bolivia. Oh, sorry, filmed it in the Atacama in Chile. It was set in Bolivia. And the movie's based around the theory that the guy is trying to lock up all the water in the area. So, you know... No one else can have it, and you can sell it back at a profit. But actually, it was all based on lithium, and that's why in the movie you see, if you place the word water for lithium, you'll see the whole thing play out in the Atacama Desert. You have electric vehicles in the movie, and you have a reference to oil. So I thought that was quite an interesting thing. So if you're into lithium, go back and watch that movie. It's probably better than the Thunderdome. Yeah, I think we've upgraded our, our movie um, Quite a bit. options. Well, so you, don't, you never need an excuse to watch a James Bond film. And you're in you London. I I've watched... All the James Bond movies, but I, I tended to watch them on a lot of long haul flights. What was your favorite? Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a Sean Connery guy, so yeah. I go all the way back. And uh, Goldfinger, Bingo. Goldfinger. Nothing, yeah, you saw that in the cinema, no? No, I'm joking. No, I, I could have. <laughs> I certainly could have. No, but I I mean I have a personal blog post where I got told. In many countries, I actually got stopped at a customs. Uh, people thinking, you, could, uh, you, you know, you look like James Bond. And my question was always, which one? Because it makes a big damn difference if it's Sean Connery or that guy who did George Lazarius or whatever uh, the hell. Timothy Dalton. Yeah, I don't even They're remember all his name. Pretty cool. Though. If you're being called James Bond, that's much better than the things I've been called in the past. Yeah. So. <laughs> I would take that. No, no, I, it was it was funny because I got that I got that from the the lady who owned B and K. The the first time we were in Shenzhen having dinner and there was all this snickering going on on the other side of the table and finally I was like, "What's that?" And finally, the guy looks at me. She goes, "She thinks you look like James Bond." <laughs> and I locked eyes on her. And I that said, was after a few beijus. Be- <laughs> That's back when you wore a suit. Yeah, it's back when I wore a suit. And my hair hadn't gone great. And a bow tie. <laughs> but uh, I just looked right at her and I said. Which one? This is an important answer. And 
she didn't get it. You know, then there was just all this other, and then they thought they felt pressure. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, which yeah. one does he want to be? <laughs> Quick, someone do some research. No, and then I had a, I had you know some of the some of the moms at uh, my daughter's school in Japan. Okay, it came it came home and, um, Kaylin said, <laughs> you know, so and so's mom thinks you look like James Bond, and again I said, to Vicky, ask ask her which one because it's really important to me. <laughs> so that's a anyway, thing. Yes, it, w- it was a thing. Joe's got his vision board with which <laughs> yeah. which James Bond he's trying to look like this week. So please specify. If you see Joe at a conference, specify which one. It's probably. I'll take any of them personally. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, he, James Bond defined cool. James a, a cool. He was gadgets through a certain demographic. So anyway, we have really digressed now. We probably will cut this part out of the final version. What are you talking about? This is a great part. Um, This is the human bit. Wasn't there another point we wanted to cover? We got the oversupply thing. Well, the one point we always cover. A special request from an Australian listener. It's not singing a song, is it? Who wanted not only you to sing a song, but we won't do show tunes today. He did want to know... How you felt when you testified before the U.S. Senate or what subcommittee or whatever? You remember, you got a lot of mileage out of that on social media. So he said he wanted me to ask you about that experience. It was, it was an incredible experience in hindsight, because when you get get the call uh you know as i'm not an american citizen right? I'm, I'm, I'm british but when you get the email or a call and for me it was just well they want me to talk about the subject i always talk about so of course i'm gonna turn up it was only a five days a week's notice and i didn't really i deliberately didn't see any of the previous videos of what a testimony looks like what um didn't want to psych yourself out yeah, and I was really busy. We, we were going on to Cathodes Conference last year. The World Tour had just finished. I was home for... I was flying to San Francisco as well for meetings. So I was really busy. So I didn't really have... Well, I, I could have had the time to watch it. I didn't. Um, I just decided, Watching James Bond movies instead. I prefer to watch, yeah, James Bond movies. It's much more interesting than watching me sitting down. But I think with the Senate situation, it was, in hindsight, a, a, an incredible... Um, moment really that for me personally for the business definitely and then for the I hope for the industry or the supply chain that you have politicians that are now the highest level of politicians these are senators and I have to explain to people that are not don't live in the US this is one step down from the president of the United States so these are people that run their own states are actual senators Um, that kind of blew me away and then the final tick in the box is when I saw Mark Zuckerberg testify, and when did Zuckerberg, you sit on a booster like he did? Did he have the? Yeah, off, he was. They didn't on offer a me one. <laughs> I probably needed it's one. It's probably BYOB. Yeah, <laughs> bring your own booster. But when Zuckerberg testified, he had a million more senators and, and cameras there. But it was the same building. It was the same senators asking him the questions they asked uh, asked me, and and uh, that was when you realize that was probably as big as it gets. Um, so I hope that answers the question from Australia. Okay. So, listener, you know who you are, and I know who you are, but I will not say your name. So, there. See, sometimes when I get asked questions, I actually do what people ask. It's 
time for the the swag section and I was guys I was supposed to bring we've got some new and improved no I wouldn't call them improved we've got some new koozies um oh. but I forgot them in the yeah. United States so I will post them uh upon my next trip since over. you already have global lithium hats since you already yeah, have global lithium hats we like to we like to provide a head-to-toe you know global lithium podcast experience so we picked you up these. You are not going to imagine what Emily has. No way! This is a gift. Has yeah. gotten for you. Got you oh wow! Gift. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Should I open much. it now or later on? I think you should open it now. You should let the fine fine listener this know. This is a lovely bag. Fortnum Masons. Well, a lovely bag. I'm undoing the bow. Having a little challenge here. Oh, you know, I don't even get gifts on my birthday. Seriously, my family don't buy me birthday presents anymore. I'm okay. travel. I'm traveling a lot. I'm traveling a lot. Oh. Okay. Right You're going to get an Applebee's gift card from me next year, Simon. <laughs> yeah, I'd love do they, it. Do they oh, have Applebee's wow. in there? So this is... Somebody knows I've been to Scotland. <laughs> oh, awesome. Basically a oh, pair great. of... English-inspired... Scottish podcast covers socks. your head and also now covers your feet. Yeah, we know you guys are visiting a lot of sites. You know, is this it's when important. we come when we're in your back garden. Again, yeah, exactly. Because I took some heat because you were, had your shoes off when you were looking at my bell awesome. and had your global lithium hats on. Oh, these are great. Thank, yeah, thank you very much. much. It's important nice. to, to wear good socks. Yeah, so. socks, socks are important. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Oh, thank you guys for, for, for coming out here and, and sharing a, a, a podcast and session I think, with us. You know, honestly, this was, is the most anticipated of the podcast that we've done because there was a lot of, a lot of Twitter noise about it's how... It's been hotly anticipated. Yes, Simon was called a lithium titan. Um, by who? Joe. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I focused on Simon Says. Uh, no, I mean, if you go back and look at my Twitter feed, I, there was a whole thing about wanting to see no holes barred discussions with lithium titans, which I get. I was by no fault. holds barred. Yeah, no you holds barred. You should have told me, Joe. I've, I've been barring some holes, <laughs> okay. holding some bars. Yeah, well. Holding bars, barring holds. No holes, holes barred. Spark, yeah, barring yeah. holes, yeah. Okay, okay. Anyway. And then we did. We didn't announce it. it was late breaking that we were going to have a separate podcast with Andy later, but it was better to have the team. I think it was good. On now, and and one of the one of the challenges we've discussed doing, and I've been doing some research and conversing with Andy on, is, is seeing if you and I can figure out how to do a live podcast from the Cathodes event, TBD. Yeah, no, I mean, we've been talking about that. I thought you had that all lined I'm up. I'm working on it, Joe, but the acoustics <laughs> are a challenge. Well, we could, like, buy a pup tent. Oh, man. <laughs> and Or some kind of little igloo. And just, like, take this kind of stuff she's got on the wall over Dude, there. Dude, you had me at little igloo. And uh, maybe we could get igloo to sponsor it. Oh, man. Oh, Joe. Come on. I mean, we're always... Like, see, that when, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with kids... You just kind of get push out the ideas and see where they go. <laughs> I'm gonna be in my in with my little mittens <laughs> yeah, okay. in California in the summer, yeah. fall. It's autumn, yes. October. Yeah. And uh, just one other thing on the swag section to all of those of you who were kind enough to contribute to the Society TM crowd raising for crowdfunding uh, venture of my daughter. The film has been shot in Los Angeles uh, last week. 
and will be is in post-production now which is a pretty complex process actually so Kalen has done it anybody who contributed had, did get some kind of email communication but uh, just one more time thanking the lithium community for supporting a worthy cause which is what I call my family this is the final one of your season right the final podcast we've been to Asia we've been to Australia we actually haven't done one in the United States we haven't <laughs> yet Cathodes, yeah, but this, is, yeah. this is a year. But no, Cathodes will kick off season two. Cathodes will kick off season two. Perfect. Because we'll have hit, we'll have hit a year. And we'll be on. We'll be live, kind of. We'll be. It'll be live. So I would. I'd like to figure out how to do it in front of audience. Okay. I think yeah, I can. We'll, I've been. I've been doing research. Both people that care. You actually, you could have that as a as an event in a in a, in a room. You can do. You can do the sound. Ferris. Tim Ferris has done that. Tim Ferriss is, is it's, it's, it's different. I, I'll work on it. Don't, you can trust this is in my capable hands. Yeah. I want it to be I'm our not, style, not okay, Tim Ferriss. I'm not stressed, style. but I don't think we should have a podcast with you and I talking about what we might do in October. <laughs> okay, so as usual, this finely oiled machine that is the Global Lithium Podcast is drawing to a close on season one. Good guests. night and good luck. Very good. It's night somewhere. <laughs>